Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Communion Sunday, October 6, 2013. Today's message is Godly Ambition by Pastor Bob Roxburgh, based on Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Can you hear me? My mic is turned on. Yes? Great. I'm glad to be back. I got the service time wrong, only I did it the right way. I was very early. So I um, walked around the neighborhood. I was really impressed. Uh, coming from Kelowna, we don't get these kind of things. So I picked up a horse chestnut. When I was being raised as a kid in England, they were called conkers. So anyway, I will take that to Brenda when I meet her at lunchtime and say, Look what they grow around Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, you probably heard the story. This is just to kind of warm and wind you up. You probably heard the story of the um, time that there was a plane with a pilot, uh, a backpacker, a scientist, and a pastor. And the plane was going along maybe in North Vancouver Island, and all of a sudden its engines conked out, and it was definitely going to crash. For some reason, the pilot said, it's very important that I take one of the parachutes. By the way, for four people, there were only three parachutes. So the pilot took a parachute and jumped. Next came the scientist. He said, I'm doing important research, and I've got to be able to get. Uh, and so I don't even want to discuss it. So he grabbed uh, what he thought was something, and he jumped out, and there enough, um, he'd gone. Then the pastor, getting on like I was and saying, this poor young gal who's a backpacker, she needs to live. So he said to her with great compassion, my dear, my life is nearly over. You take the final parachute, you jump, and it'll all be over. She says, oh, don't worry. We, we both have parachutes. The scientist jumped out with my, knackpack, my backpack. So we always need to be careful what we think we're doing and whether we're really needed, whatever. Let me lead you in prayer and speak on Philippians chapter 3. Speak, Lord, while we listen, hushed our hearts in expectancy for the words that you speak. They are life indeed, living bread from heaven now our spirits feed. Amen. I want today to preach an expositional sermon. That's somewhat old-fashioned. You take a passage of scripture and you unfold it. And I want to do that to the best of my ability. I've done that all my life and I love doing it. But knowing that you are a church in transition, and I had a second shot, I'm going to speak topically next week. I will not speak expositionally. And I want to speak about the future of the church, capital C, from the book of Acts. But I want to say some strong things, some difficult things, and I hope some very hopeful things. So, exposition today, topical preaching next week, here we go. Kids are kids, and you often hear them say, you know, when I grow up I'd like to be a professor, a policeman, or whatever. It's ambition. Ambition in their simple terms as they understand it. And we all have it. The trouble is that our ambitions, 
whatever stage we are in life, can be good or they can be misplaced. They can have a good perspective or they can have a poor perspective, as we'll speak in a minute. I'm reminded in the Middle Ages of a man who went to a group of other men who were working on the cathedral, and as you know, they took hundreds and hundreds of years to build. And so he said to one man, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm putting in a day's work, how I get paid. He went to another man and he said, what are you doing? And he was a little more insightful and perhaps a little more discerning. He said, I'm building a wall. This is my project. I'm building this wall. But then he went to another man and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a cathedral. I won't be around when it's finished, but I'm part of a big vision. And that's what we do with ambition. We can either have little ambitions that say, well, I'd like to get rich or famous or whatever, or we can have big ambitions in which we want our lives to count and live for the kingdom of God. Well, this is where we meet the Apostle Paul. He's in midlife. He's in prison for being faithful to God. So he's hardly a celebrity. And he reflects where he's come, where he's going. He looks forward. And so he writes Philippians chapter 3 from his prison and the passage that was read to us. And what he does is he shares with us three things. They told you it was an old-fashioned type of sermon this week. Point one, point two, point three. But those three things he shares about his own ambitions, his own values, the things that he's looking forward to, he's sharing his goals and his vision and his values. Whenever we buy something, we're sharing a value. Now, maybe we're buying a mattress because we value getting asleep. So, I'm not saying this is all wrong, but it is true. Often how we spend money and where we live and how we live is just not just about money. It's a reflection of the things that really drive us. And so, Paul is doing that. And here are the three things. I'll give them to you, then I'll fill in the blanks. In verses 2 through 6, he says... I've learned a lesson. So let me tell you what the lesson is, so that if you fall asleep in the next ten minutes, at least you'll know what I was talking about. He says, the lesson that I've learned for my life is to put no confidence in the flesh. We'll fill that in in a minute. The second thing he says in verses 7 to 9 is, I've learned that in order to win... I have to lose something. Thirdly, he said, and now my life is driven by a longing. I have a vision for what the rest of my life should be like. And that's in verses 10 to 14. So let's start with the lesson that he learned. We had it read to us, but let me say again, he says, starting at verse 3, I've got lots of things to have confidence in the flesh. If anybody has a reason, look at me. And then he lists it. He said, circumcised the eighth day, uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a real Hebrew. In regard to the law, wow, I kept every jot and tittle. I was a Pharisee. I persecuted the church because I thought it was wrong. 
And as for righteousness, well, wow, my skirts were totally clean. So he's basically saying, I had a lot going for me. But I've learned not to have confidence in the flesh. Now, he wasn't suggesting that he be a jellyfish. If one is a train driver or a pilot or a surgeon doing a brain operation, you'd better have confidence in your skill, your ability to know what you're doing. I'm not suggesting that we go, oh, well, God will guide me, whatever. So it's not that. It's about what is the driving force, the center of our lives. And so Paul has said, I was an avid colonial. You know, I was raised in England and I used to meet people when I was back in England for 10 years or so, um, some years back. Um, and I used to go, oh, no wonder people are not keen on the British. You know, when I was in Pune, I was a regiment, you know, and all the rest of it. And I used to go, oh my goodness. And Paul was one of those. He came from a very respected family. He was very well connected. Best education, best connections, deeply involved in religious life. He probably knew the Archbishop of Canterbury and went to Oxford or Cambridge. That's what Paul was saying. But he said, look it, the greatest lesson of my life is this, that God wants me and not my accomplishments. And that indeed is a huge lesson for all of us to learn. So that's my first point. didn't take long. Let me go on to the second. He then talks about a loss he has experienced. He has this in verses 7 to 9. Whatever was gained to me, he says in verse 7, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For whose sake I've lost everything, I consider it garbage. When I taught at Regent for a while, I used to share Jim Packer's office. It was his office, not mine, because I was just sort of an adjunct professor. Um, and we would go out for Chinese food and all the rest of it whenever I was there. Um, but I remember Jim teaching on this particular verse. It's garbage. And he said, you know, Paul adds up all the stuff in his life and he says it's excrement. It's a fairly strong statement. I mean, because the statement in the original language is stronger than garbage, what you put out on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. He said it, it's excrement. So let me not go on about that. Just enough that the force of how Paul felt about the things that everybody thinks important, he says they're not. Now, in this passage, I have to say, and there isn't time to deal with the two aspects, there are two aspects to this idea. Um, one is, here is a theological point. It's the center of the Reformation, if you know what that is. Basically, that if you're going to live justified before a God, you must do it by faith and not by your own works. And the passage means that and has hundreds of hundreds of hours of discussion about it. So let me have that as said, but there's another side to this idea. I've suffered loss and I counted garbage and I don't have my own righteousness. This is a psychological, not just a theological issue. He said, Paul is saying, until I let go of my self-centeredness, of my sense of entitlement, like Tiger Woods, I will never understand the real issues of life. 
Remember what Paul said? He said, I was converted on the Damascus Road, could have been a celebrity, gotten in Christianity magazine, done the circuit of churches, you know, been told about the most influential Christian of my day and all that stuff. But God's Spirit grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and for three years he took me into the desert of Arabia. There ain't many super churches there. There was nothing, just God and me. But there he said, I learned that if I wanted to win, I had to lose. I experienced a loss. Things became like excrement. Now, there are two kinds of losses. There's an objective loss where you really lose something. You lose your wallet. I'll tell you about this in a minute. And then there's a subjective loss in which a thing loses its value to us. Objectively, look at my keys. Look at my glasses. I lose them all the time. And somebody said to me, well, it's because you're getting older. I said, forget it. I've done it since I was a kid. I remember preaching in Chicago once, and I mentioned the fact that I always lost stuff, uh, particularly my keys. And so a nice, kind man gave me one of those key finders. You know, you press a button and you find out where your keys are. Oh, I was really excited. Uh, and when I got home to Brenda at lunch, I said, you know what? I've got this key finder, but I'd lost it on the way home. My kids are going to put on my gravestone if I have one. We loved our dad, but he was a loser. <laughs> now, Paul had some objective loss. He'd lost his status, and he'd lost his freedom because he was a Christian. It's hard for all of us, including myself, to understand that. But you know it's true. But particularly, Paul is also talking about subjective loss. Things begin to lose their value and their importance. They do, by the way, as you get older. You don't have to be very spiritual to say, well, those things are not so important to me anymore, because as you get older, often they are not. For example, when I was a young thing, and my wife was a young thing, and our kids were very, very little things, we used to always be changing something in the house. Add an English pub in the basement, add a sunroom, add do this, do that, do the other. And now, I don't even want to hang a picture. I have no interest in remodeling houses anymore. I have no interest in whatever. So if one of your partners in life, your husband or your wife, has lost all interest in that, it must be getting old. Uh, but anyway, but there are more importance than that humor I've just thrown at you. When people of whatever age lose their health, their values and perspectives change. When they are divorced, their values and their perspective change. Get inside the mind and the life and the heart of a single mother, and she knows how much her world has so dramatically changed. People who are bereaved, perhaps not so much in old age, because you come to expect it, even though it's always hard, but in a younger age, suddenly bereaved, your values change. And when there's been a failure, your values change. I'm going to tell you something. Bear with me in a moment, because the first part might sound like I'm bragging, I'm not. The second part, well, you'll understand. 
during a 10-year period of my life, I was pastor of the largest Baptist church in England. Okay, now you heard that statement. I was called to a burgeoning church near Chicago in the United States. Huge staff, huge church, huge everything. And I went there for lots of good reasons, although I think it was a mistake. After 18 months, I quit. I didn't run off with the secretary. I didn't run off with the church funds. I didn't come up with some church heresy. It was just a total misfit. And the story doesn't matter. But having gone from speaking at conferences worldwide, being pastor of the largest Baptist church in the country, blah, 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 blah. You can imagine what now, 18 months later, I feel like. I feel like an utter and complete failure. Eventually, my wife and I make our way back to Canada, and I re-enter ministry. It wasn't that I had to have some discipline, I hadn't done anything wrong, and I go, how did that happen? But it did. But you know what? I discovered that there's life after failure. I discovered that it's not only life after failure, but failure has this powerful ability to change you and mellow you and make you into a compassionate person in a way that nothing else ever can or ever will. And so when Paul says, and I've suffered the loss of all things, he may be speaking a bit hyperbolically, but he's basically saying, I've come to get a perspective of what's really valuable in life. At that point, having a big church was no longer of any value to me. At that point, being well-known, oh, you're Bob Roxburgh, you speak around, blah, blah. They, they lacked importance. Other things that are more important, but again, there isn't time. But I know that for most of us, the areas that drive us most are popularity and position and power and possessions. Now, I know most of you are not fans of Madonna. I'm not either. Except in the movie Evita, she really did a good job. And she sings very powerfully, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. That's where Evita became the new president and so on. So last time I was in Buenos Aires, in fact, the only time I was ever in Buenos Aires, I went and stood under the balcony where they'd filmed this and where Evita had spoken and where... Madonna had sung, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. That is a very powerfully moral song. She sings lots of stuff in it. That again, there isn't time to go over. But the one line, just like the Apostle Paul could have said it, she said, but as for fame and fortune, they mean nothing at all. Hmm. All the words from Madonna. I'm sure that was put into her by the movie and not by her own heart, but whatever. Paul said, the only real thing of value is knowing Jesus Christ. And he's going to describe that in a minute, so let me move on to that. I just have a little footnote. I went to Wheaton College in Illinois where Billy Graham went. So Cameron went to Wheaton College, so Graham went to Wheaton College, so Heather went to Wheaton College, which she called Clone College because everybody else had been there and she was sent there. 
But Billy Graham is probably the most famous person from Wheaton College. And when my son Graham was graduating, 50 years after Billy Graham had graduated, Billy Graham was the speaker, so we were all there, and we heard Billy speak. It was one of the most powerful sermons I've heard. And basically, all he said was, to quote a little hymn, only one life, it will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That's a value statement. So let's come to the third point. Paul says now, okay, I'm in prison. I've told you the lesson I've learned. I've told you how my values have been totally changed and how that things that everybody else thinks are so important, I know they're not. I've lost them, at least subjectively, and he'd lost his freedom as well, but perhaps that's incidental. Or maybe not. Maybe my failure wasn't incidental. And then he comes to verses 10 and 11. I have to read them out again. They're so important. In verses 10 and 11, he says this, I want now to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. We've got to unwrap that. Yes, three little sub-points, but let's unwrap it. Because here he's giving his vision and his mission statement. I often tell churches when I do consulting to them, please don't sit down and write a mission statement and a vision statement because they'll end up being phony as a $3 bill because you think, well, this is what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to be soul winners. This is what we're supposed to be like. We're supposed to love one another. This is what we're supposed to be like. So we'll write it down. We are determined to reach people for Jesus and live godly, holy lives. There's nothing wrong with that. The trouble is the best way to write values and mission statements is to say, how do we really live as a congregation? And we'll write that down, and maybe we'll add, and we'd like to change this. But at the moment, these are our values. For example, we want to see people led to Jesus. And one church I was consulting with, they hadn't led anybody to Jesus for about 10 years, and I went, that's a value that you have? You don't do it, but it's a value? Uh-uh, it's not a value, it's a, it's a wish. So you could say, our wish list is... So Paul now is being deadly serious. He's saying, this is my life. This is my vision and mission statement. I'm not writing it down so it'll look good on a brochure. The first thing is, I want to know him better. This isn't say I need to know Christ. It's I need to know him better. Richard of Chichester, you don't know him because he lived in England in the 11th century, so I doubt most of you know him. But he, he, he coined that phrase that became a popular song some years ago when I was a kid, so it must have been 100 years ago. Here's what he said. I want to see him more clearly. I want to love him more dearly. And I want to follow him more nearly. And I won't elaborate because I want to rush on to a conclusion here. Paul said, my vision from here on out, which can be your vision whether you're 7, 17, 27, or 70, this can be your vision. I just want to get to know Jesus more clearly, dearly, and nearly. 
The second thing is, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. And again, if I had a week with you, I'd go off into Ephesians chapter 1 and unwrap that stuff in which Paul says, the resurrection released the power of the Holy Spirit. I was in England during the charismatic movement. Well, it was here too, and it was in England. In England, they tended to handle it a little more rationally. And I remember, oh, who was it? John Stott saying, you know, the charismatic movement is two-thirds crazy, but one-third very powerful. And I said, well, that's not a bad average. The charismatic movement, for whatever you thought about it, whatever you may or may not have experienced about it, did remind us in a powerful way that the church is meant to move forward not by institutional statements, but by God's people experiencing the power of God's Spirit on their lives. I have to leave that there because of time. So let me come to the next thing he says. And this one gets me. I want to share in Christ's suffering. Oops. Was Paul a masochist? In some ways, he had shared in Christ's suffering, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged within an inch of death, had been run out of town. I mean, you name it. He'd certainly shared in sufferings. But I think what he's saying after a lot of research and a study of the original language, just kidding. I think he's saying, I want to get inside of the heart of God for other people. I want to get inside the heart of, other God, of God. You see, God loved the world. Some time ago in the summer at Kelowna, they had fireworks as they have around here, and I sat uh, on the bleachers waiting for them to go off on the lake for about an hour, and people kept walking by to get seats. Fine. And I watched humility, black and brown and white, and whatever color these people were, whatever nation they were from, I just see them pouring by. This is Canada, right? Then the fireworks went on, and that's fine. They couldn't be as good as Vancouver's, but they were fine, whatever. I turned to Brenda, who is very philosophical. She said, what, what are you musing about? I said, I guess I realized in looking at all this crowd that God so loved the world, and I don't. It may have been an overstatement. Maybe it was just a reminder that it's so easy get wrapped up in our own lives. And Paul says, my vision is to get inside the heart that suffered and died in order that I can empathize. Which I tried to do when I went to the bakery this morning. The first time I came, I went to Starbucks. And the second time I went to the bakery, I'm going, Lord, I feel a bit better than I did in Kelowna uh, at the fireworks. I think I could love these people. But how, Paul is really saying, my life is about reaching God's heart to these people. Who else is going to do it? My brother Alan, who 
is a lot more acerbic than I, and even if he ever hears this tape, I'd still say the same. My brother Alan is a lot more acerbic than I am, which means he can say some nasty things. Um, but he had a brilliant statement once in one of his books. He said, I wonder how many evangelism programs churches would need if they simply taught their members to get to know their neighbors. Hmm. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want to get inside. And I want to have God's heart in such a way that I love the world that he loved. Well, verses 12 to 14 can only be a postscript. In those verses that end up, not that I've arrived, but I press on, what Paul is saying is, it's a continual journey. It has ups and downs, steps forward, steps back, failures, successes. But we aim not for somebody to say in our eulogy he was famous, but that the voice of God is pervading at our funeral saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I am going to summarize, and then I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer and I'm going to ask some questions that I hope that as we come to communion, you will keep asking yourself as you take the bread and the cup. So you don't have to close your eyes yet, but here's a summary of what I've said. One, Paul learned this lesson. God wants me and not my accomplishments. Two, the values of the kingdom of God should be my values. They are supreme. I must lose this idea that culture tells me how to live. It must become garbage to me. Thirdly, from here on out, the vision and the mission statement of my life is that I want to know Jesus more deeply. I want to live in the power of his spirit. And I want to live for others, shall we pray. Here are questions to ask as we come to the communion. What do you value the most? What drives you Monday to Sunday to Monday to Sunday? What preoccupies most of your time? What are those priorities? Wherein does your security lie? Where do you find your security? And finally, whose approval in life are you seeking? I guess this will be podcast, so you can get that, or maybe I should just print them in for next week's bulletin. They are the questions of life for those who would like to follow the Lord. What do you value the most? What drives you? What preoccupies your time? Where does your security lie? And whose approval are you seeking? Amen.